Uh, but we are going to begin. Um, Brant, would you mind praying for us? I'll get him on this one. Let's bow. Holy Father, we are uh, grateful to be here. Um, we're grateful to be here with you, that you're with us and you love us. And Father, I thank you for the work that Dean has put into teaching this morning, for the lessons and the revelations that you've laid upon his heart. And uh, Father, we look forward to learning, listening, and hearing your voice today. Thank you for the worship opportunity that we were a part of this morning, Father. May it be pleasing to you. May we serve you and love you as we go from this place. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Thank you, brother. And welcome to the Connections Class 2021. It's hard to believe we already got a new year. Praying for it to be new in so many different ways, yes. It's good to be with you all. Um, I, I want you to think about a question that will lead to why um, I, I decided to, to kind of go with the topic that we're doing here. Um, I, I want you to think about this. I want you to imagine, and, and it's not hard to do in the world we live in, but imagine kind of looking out metaphorically on the world, so to speak. You're looking out on, on your community or on the world, and you see two things at the same time, right? On the one hand, you see a community and a world that is in desperate need for what Jesus is all about. You know what I'm talking about? I'm not talking about religion and all that. We'll, we'll, we'll flesh that out in a moment, but just think about what Jesus is all about. There's a community and a world that's desperately needing that on the one hand. And on the other hand, you see the people that are supposed to know him best having no clue what that is, right? Have you ever been in situations like that? Sometimes it's just a moment. Sometimes we might feel like our own community's been that way, our own family's been that way. But do you feel that tension sometimes? You've got a, a group or a community or a situation or a world that desperately needs what Jesus is all about and then the people who kind of wear his name and the church folks that are supposed to get it seem to have no idea what matters most to Jesus, right? So, so again, just think about it. You're already fleshing out images and thoughts in your own mind, but, but I think about you know, how would you name some of the things that matter most to Jesus? One of the things I think about is Jesus like captures a whole new imagination about the way we think about the world. Isn't that part of what, if you're like me, just the flipping of the calendar is helpful to say, can I start thinking differently? Because I've got this kind of trash thought about 2020 and all that. I just, it, whether or not it's even true, we're ready to think it's going to be better, right? right? And, and Jesus had that way when he came in his language. I'm, I'm kind of playing with my own version of his language. Turn around, repent, because the kingdom of God is here. What, is, what does it mean when he's announcing and then going to tell stories about, like you heard a storyteller preacher today like you got to stay with the story to get what's going on and and Jesus did that let me tell you a story the kingdom of God is like and what he's trying to do is open up our imagination in ways that has been closed before have you ever thought of a time when we need that and the world needs that and our church needs that and our family needs that more we desperately need a, a vision of possibility of hope and of imagination that Jesus would bring so that's one piece of what Jesus is all about. The other thing I love about what Jesus is all about, um, they, they said in Mark, I love my, one of my favorite descriptions of the book of Mark, Jesus goes and he teaches in the synagogue and he heals people. And you remember what they said about him? It says they were astounded because they said, no one preaches or teaches with this kind of authority. And 
I take that that it's not just Jesus had like, he didn't have any badges. He didn't have the list of PhDs that's so impressive with David and others. He didn't have any of that. I believe G the power Jesus had is he had the ability to take that vision, that kingdom vision and imagination, and to speak it right into the inside of everyday life. And the power, by his imagination, by his vision, by his, obviously, Holy Spirit power, to take things that were dead and make them come alive. Have you ever imagined a time, a world, a community that has needed what Jesus is all about more? New imagination, incredibly new power. And isn't it unfortunate that sometimes church folks can get all wrapped up, and I've been there, in things that Jesus isn't all about. And they may even be tangentially important, but I'm just reminded throughout history how easy it is for religious folks and for church-going folks and all that. And hear me, I'm not beating up on church. I'm just saying, can we think about how easy it is to fall into a situation when the world and the community, and I'm including us in it, do you ever have those times when you come into a church gathering and you are hungry for life and the word of God and the songs of your people and you walked out thinking, ah, no, no criticism, it's just it wasn't there. You know what I'm saying? And there's this sense of longing, right? And the church sometimes can miss it. Right? And we'll, we'll talk about ways that that happens in, in, in other times. But here's the thing. I, I believe we find ourselves in that place where people are hungry for the very things that Jesus came to bring. And just go down the list of things he said. I came to give you life. I didn't come to give you a religion. I came to give you life and life more abundantly. I've come to seek and save those people who don't know where they're going. Can we de-church that language, right? And Do we know where we're going in 21, 2021? Jesus said, I came to seek and to rescue those people who are wandering around and have no idea where they're headed. Has there ever been a time when we've needed to be more in alignment with what Jesus is all about for a world and a community and even us that's hungry for it? So for me, what I like to do in times like that is sit down and listen to people who have been through it before. And so that's kind of what I want to do. Um, with a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Most of you, a lot of you probably have heard of this guy, uh, a Christian 20th century, literally gave his life uh, for the gospel in, in, uh, in, in times of Nazi Germany. I'm going to uh, kind of look down through here and give you a couple, <clears throat> uh, a couple of highlights from, here, here's what I'm not going to do. So I'm going to be playing off a book. The book's called Life Together. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment um, and where it came about. Um, there are a couple different ways to to do a class where you're using a book as, as, a, as a main resource. One is to assume everybody's reading it and we're gonna go through it and say, here's what Bonhoeffer says here, and here's what he says here. That's not what I do. Um, and again, no problem with that, it's just not my style. Here's what I, I promise you I will always do anytime I have an opportunity to teach or preach, you will get one text that we will live in in that time. That's what we do. So for me, what I do when I study a book is I let the book raise up themes and ideas that will then lead to a passage that might explore that. And then, here's what we do. We push the book away for a while. Text gets center stage. This is about God. This is about what God has to say. And here's the picture I want you to have in your mind. What I want to do is invite this dude, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, to sit in the room with us. Right? How do we do class every week? We look at a text and the life of God and we look at it together. And yeah, I got some notes and I've thought about it. 
but you know this, I mean it when I say it, your thoughts and your insight as you're responding to text in the life of God is every bit as important to me and quite often is more important because what God had to say through you is more important. Does it make sense? I really believe that. So can we imagine this? Dietrich Bonhoeffer isn't like better than anybody else. He's a pretty smart guy. Now he knows even more because he's with Jesus. But can we imagine he's just in the room and he gets to, uh, the perfect image for me is, is Gene Hatcher when he's here because you know what I say and I mean it. Gene is my co-teacher, and anytime he wants to speak, he gets the floor, right? I mean it. He got a lot more wisdom than I do, and he's usually a lot more funny than I am, and we have fun with it, right? So can we imagine that Gene and Dietrich are sitting next to each other? Can you imagine that? By that way, it would be a lot of fun. And so Bonhoeffer's in the room with us. So he's not Jesus. The book isn't running the show. God is, and he would be the first one to say it. But we're going to let him speak into it. Does that make sense? We get a, a voice that throughout the ages, ages, but for years and years, Christians have said, this is a voice we're to listen to. Does that make sense? All right. So that's all we want to do. So let me catch you up on just a couple things. I'm not going to, um, again, another thing would be bore you with a lot of details. So I want you to think about the story of what's behind all this. Um, uh, my little addition I put on the class email, so if you want to know, and you can look at anyone you want, but it, I love it because it, it has a spiritual gift of being short, which you know I don't have. But it's short and sweet. So, um, so all I'm doing this week is pulling some things out of the introduction. We're just getting started. We haven't really gotten to the meat of the book. And we'll probably do uh, some more introductory stuff next week. So let me get you up to um, what will get us to a text. Um, February of 1933, Bonhoeffer, who's a theologian, he's very much a David Fleer type. He's a theologian, PhD kind of guy. But he's a pastor at heart. And he loves the people of God. And so he's doing a lecture on Berlin Radio, 1933. And he's calling the church out for making an idol out of what he calls a misleader. And he warned them, here's the thing, if you, if you go with this Adolf guy who is looking like a leader, he's going to end up being a misleader because you're not just going to let him lead, you're going to make him an idol. Is that prophetic or what? He's in the middle of the broadcast and can you guess what happens? <laughs> broadcast gets cut off. Sure enough, they end up doing the very thing he warned against. The, the German public voted him in. There's a staggering statistic. I knew about some of this, but I didn't realize the statistic here. Um, maybe your job would drop on I would. When the Nazis took over, 95.2% of the Germans were Christian. Did you know? I, I knew there were a lot. I didn't know. When the Nazis took over, 95.2% of people were Christians. So we think we're churchy in Franklin, which we're not as much as we thought we were, but can you imagine that? And here's a guy that tried to warn the church at the beginning, hey, you're going, you're selling out. And so what happened is um, he did win out, as you know, and Bonhoeffer left. And he said, I am not going to be um, kind of complicit with, uh, uh, let me just read the quote, he refused to have any part of the German Christian compromise that the Nazis had worked out. They literally worked out kind of a compromise with, with the Protestant Christians. Later, what happened is there's a group of pastors and leaders and Christians that say, this is, they're reading the Bible. That's all they're doing. They're reading the Bible and saying, this isn't where God wants us to go. And it became known as the confessing church. We're confessing our faith, and we're going to be willing to stand up for it, even against the power and the culture that's going that way. Does that make sense? So the confessing church, uh, Bonhoeffer leaves, goes to England, pastors two little uh, German-speaking churches in England, in London, and they call him back, and they say, we need you back here. By the way, one other thing, again, I didn't know before, um, a guy named Karl Barth, it's spelled like Barth, but Karl Barth, was a famous preacher in the 20th century as well. If you've, if you've ever danced around some of the more scholarly preachers in the, in the 20th century, you might have heard this guy named. 
guy's name. But what he did when Bonhoeffer left is he rebuked him. He said, Dietrich, you're leaving. And again, I want to read this quote. It's pretty powerful. Let me see if I can find it. He accused him of running away from the battle. He said, and I quote, he accused Bonhoeffer of abandoning his post and wasting his splendid theological armor. <laughs> so you are, he said, you're a powerhouse for God, splendid theological army while the house of your church is on fire. He said, the battle's here, don't leave. Now, there were more complicated things going on, but Bonhoeffer never, never forgot that. So when the confession church called, and guess what they asked him to do? I love this. This is so like Christian back in the day cool. They said, would you come back and run an underground, illegal, secret seminary to train younger pastors to stand up for Jesus against all the junk that's going on? How cool would that be? Like, it's one thing to do Lipscomb, and I love that, and that, that's fun, and I've taught there, but I would love having a little underground church. That, wouldn't that be cool? It's like back in the day in the catacombs. So he comes back, and he gets together and does life together in one form or another, very intensely for a year, and then on and off for three years. Hear that word. He does life together with 25 younger pastors, not just to teach in the Bible and how to preach, but how to live life. And in that three-year period of time, he writes two of his most famous works. One of them is this tiny little gift that we're going to be looking at called Life Together, which is exploring what Christian community looks like. What does it look like to be the people of God when the world is literally going to hell in handbags? And then maybe, maybe you've heard of his other one called The Cost of Discipleship. That's the way we, you know, it's his seminal work where he unpacks the Sermon on the Mount, the famous language, even if you haven't heard of the book, you might have heard somebody uh, preach against cheap grace. Well, it came from that very famous book. All of that he wrote, and I love thinking about it this way. He didn't write sitting in the back room in academia. He's, he wrote it, picture this, he wrote it right here. He's living out life in the middle of Christian community with people he knows and he loves and he's inspired by and all that. Make sense? And he wrote these two works. So I, I believe this is a helpful one to, for us to play off of to think about how to live life in our time and in our world. Does that make sense? A any questions about any of that before we dive into the text that I'm led to in, in the introduction? I said this in the email. Let me say this again to um, I, I did most of my ministry early on with college students, so I learned early on, anytime I did a book study, my number one assumption is nobody will read the book, <laughs> right? Now, I, I, that was kind of funny with college students. I since learned that's just a good way to do it. So I want people to come in. They're just coming in off the street. We're going to sit down. We're going to study the Bible. You don't have to do homework to be in this class. You understand? So there's no pressure. Anything that comes from the book, I will either quote or summarize. Is that fair? And what we will always do is allow that to come to the text of Scripture, and that'll be the main thing that we do. Make sense? But if you do want to read along, wonderful, I'll let you know. We're going to do the introduction this week and last week. Now, you might have a different introduction. Um, I, I gave you the cheapest Kindle one is the one I have. It's an old copy that I've had. Um, there's a cheaper paperback if you want the real thing that I put out there. But So if, you know, we're going to introduce it in the next two weeks, and then we're going to dive in. He has five chapters on community, life, uh, the day alone, and the day with others is really cool. Um, forgetting the last two, but, but we'll, we'll go through it. I'll let you know where we are. So if you want to read along, great. If you don't, don't worry about it. He's just going to be another one like you sitting in the room. Does it make sense? All right. So I want to look at a passage um, of, somebody, of, of a couple other people that in this case remind me in some ways of, uh, of Bonhoeffer. We'll talk about why in, in a moment. So if you've got your Bibles, your phones, go to Acts chapter 3. Look at uh, uh, one through eight. And so here's the way I'm going to do it. 
always, we're going to read the text and do what we always do. What do you hear or see? And it doesn't have to have anything to do with anything we talked about with the book or anything like that. What are you hearing for our day and age? And then I will bring in a couple of thoughts that came to me through reading the, uh, the chapters in the book. And so here's a way to think about it. What I love about this text is here are two people, Peter and John, who know how to bring together those two worlds that we said were a part of the beginning. A, a community around them right in front of their face that needs what Jesus has to offer and the church itself. So what can we learn from these two guys about what it means to be followers of Jesus in a world like ours and theirs? So uh, Acts chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And Peter said, look at us. So the man gave him them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have, I will give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with him into the temple courts, walking and jumping, and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit, begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. I love this story. What do you notice? What, what can we learn from these guys about the way they interact with the world? Brand new church. Pentecost has just happened. So this is our first story of the life, the everyday life, not the churchy, too churchy life of, of the early church. What, what do you learn? Anything that you notice or recognize in this text? They weren't in it for money. That's for sure. They weren't going to get it, and they didn't have anybody with them, right? Sorry, we ain't got it. They were, by the way, I always laugh at this because this is kind of, I'm just being honest, sometimes what I do when I cross the homeless people on the way to church, sorry I don't have any money, sometimes I, I have in the past, I'm just being honest, but they really meant it, they don't have any money, you, you, you followed their story, they left their business largely, maybe they did some of it, um, and then when Jesus always sent them on mission trips, he always tended to say, well, don't take anything with you, you got to depend on people, all that kind of stuff, so they don't have any money, at least that day. They weren't in it for the money. This guy probably was a little bit because he needs to eat. I love that. Others, by the way, I'm sorry, what, uh, Melanie and then Keith have a mic. And so if it's a quick comment, I will repeat it. If, if we're going to talk and you can share some more things, we'll bring mics. What else do you see? What do you notice in this text? Anything at all? How they relate to the world. Oh, Melanie's right next to you. What they were offering. What they were offering. <laughs> I heard this voice. I'm like, we said I'm that looking twice. at Tony, but Tony ain't saying that. That's pretty cool. Can you do that? What I thought it'll sound better. <laughs> that was cool, Keith. Thank you. <laughs> I think I think Keith and I are on the same page. I love it. Man. <laughs> uh, what Peter and John were offering was more valuable than what he was asking yes, for. Yes. Yes. And I love the part at the end uh, where they said um, they were in Solomon's colonnade, and it says the man was holding tightly. Yeah. Oh. He, oh, he offered more than they had, 
And then when it was given to him, he held tightly to what oh, had been right. given to him. Yes, they've got something more than all those other people that have been going by. And maybe he was pretty happy about the guy with the Lexus who threw, you know, a little bit more and all that. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Other thoughts, reactions to this? What are you noticing? Yes, Sam. Yes. Uh, yes, I'll repeat that because I want to come back to this one. This is where I want to camp out because it does connect me to Bonhoeffer. They didn't just, they said, look at us. Look at us. Hold on to that. We're going to come back to that one, okay? Uh, you can take that back to uh, Kevin. Thank you so much, Keith, for serving and knowing us. Um, man, that's loud. He uh, uh, gave the man what he needed. Not what he asked for, but what he needed. Yes. Uh, healing and Jesus. Yes, he gave him what he actually needed and not even what he's asking for. Now, let's be honest, by the way, because, again, church folks can do this sometimes. This is not a text that says, okay, go give somebody a Bible and the gospel, but don't care about their food, and Right? Um, I, I know I've, I've mentioned this story before. One of my favorite things about David Lipscomb, and there was a famine in the South and all that stuff, and um, and and the folks in in the North were were sending resources and stuff, and they were sending down preachers and Bibles. And he said, "That's great," but he said, "Can you first send bread, then send your preachers and Bibles? Because we're dying. <laughs> so can you take care of us first, then send your preacher? Right? So sometimes it's not an either or, and that's always saying either." Uh, I think about, there's another story I'll talk about too, but I think about the healing of the paralytic stories behind me in my head when I see this one. Because remember, they dig a hole in the roof, and this guy can't walk. And that's why he's there. He just wants to walk. You remember Jesus does first? What does he say? Your sins are forgiven. He's dealing with what is crippling him in every possible way, not just his legs. And then he goes and heals his physical thing. To me, that's a beautiful paradigm for the church. We're always modeling our body, the body of Christ, hopefully when we're doing it right, for the body of Jesus when he was here, which is we're going to take care, we're going to respond to any need that comes our way. Physical, great, we're there. And the God, yes. So we, both of you guys, bring this together beautifully. What he really needed was the very thing we talked about. Here's an example of the world of community, one guy who needs what Jesus is here to offer, a new vision for the possibility of life. Here's the thing, that, remember we talked about imagination. One thing this guy is hoping for is a meal for the next day. Maybe if he's lucky for the next week. He cannot begin to imagine that he's going to walk and jump on the way out the door. Right? So Jesus isn't just coming here in the moment through his church to help his physical need. He's opening up his possibilities and imagination for more. Remember, by the way, there's a detail about this isn't guy that, that just can't walk. What, what did it say about his condition? Did you catch that? Loud? From birth. So sometimes when we, I, I've said this before, especially when the gospel writers and storytellers in scripture are giving us details, I mean, they only had a limited amount of scroll. Like literally the book of Acts, he probably runs out of scroll. That's what a lot of scholars think. Like they run out of space. Um, so what they include is really important. Why does he include that? Let's picture this again, not just for their time, not even just for, for Bonhoeffer's time, but for our own. Jesus looks at the world, and he loves to step into these situations that there is no conceivable way out of. <laughs> this guy hadn't just been struggling for a couple years. It's not just a little disease that, uh, as if there is one, that's going to take this for a little while. This guy was born that way, and they step in and change his whole outlook on life. Isn't that pretty cool?
Not the only time it happens. John 9 comes to the mind, right? When Jesus comes up and there was a man blind from birth. And that's a big deal, the book of John. So one of them, John has healing at a huge distance here. He has one with time. And Jesus is transcending all of that. It's beautifully said. Any other thoughts on this? Yeah, Brent. Sort of annoying. The annoying is probably close. Uh, people can, literally can't hear. So we're trying to, uh, for the folks streaming. So what I like about the story is it starts with one day. It's just like any other day. You know, they're going about their normal course of activities. They're going to pray at the temple at 3 o'clock when they do all the time. The beggar, he's where he always is. It's just another day. And I think in our lives, I mean, there's an example there. We're going to encounter people, things, events in the normal course of our day that are screaming out for what do they really need rather than what do they want. Yes, I love that. So you zeroed on a couple throwaway, not throwaway, a couple quick points before we get to the ones that are connected with Bonhoeffer. They, Luke makes a big deal to say this was, why were they there that day? Because it was 3 o'clock. And what did Jewish people do at 3 o'clock? You can go there today, and it's still true. They pray. We, we've taught on this. I think the first class I ever did was talking about different spiritual practices. We think about singing and Bible reading, all that kind of stuff. One of the oldest, longest-standing Christian practices, uh, Judeo-Christian practices in history, is the practice of what is called fixed-hour prayer. Some time in a certain time in the morning, we're going to pray. Certain time at noon, we're going to pray. At, at three o'clock in the afternoon, we're going to pray. In the evening, we're going to pray. And it's it's varied. In the Psalms, it says seven times a day I will praise you. Um, four is very very common. It's probably the common practice in Christianity today. Or three morning, uh, uh, midday, evening. Now. Don't hear that as, oh, thou must go do this. But here it is. This is a practice that has been around that has shaped the lives of Christians for a long, long time. And what I love is what you brought out. I love how God will take the rhythms that we, or that he has given us, or the rhythms that we choose to follow that become ordinary and everyday and rote. I got up this morning without even thinking. Melanie knows exactly where I went. I went to the coffee pot first, and I made my coffee. I went and got my cat second. That's what I do in the mornings. Don't judge me. I go hug my cat while I'm making my coffee. That's what I do. That's my morning. And then I get up and sometimes frantically get to church, and then we get here and we do. That's what we do, and you've got your morning rhythms. And hear me, God is at the center of it. Like, I, I don't come here as a job. I come here because God gives me life in this place through you. Seeing you fills me in this place. And that's what we do. But isn't it glorious that God says, I'm, I'm always there, and yet I'm going to bring these God moments right in the middle of your everyday, ordinary routine. We've said this again and again and again. Why is a habit important? Because you cannot predict when the moments will happen. Can't predict when the moments at the table, your time with your kids, your hot, whatever, your time in prayer. You can't predict when the moment's going to be a moment. But the only way the moment's going to happen is if the habit's there to be inhabited. Does that make sense? And I love that. Three o'clock. It's their time of prayer. They would. They pro, they are not thinking. And I've taught on this before sometimes where you take it all the way through the end of chapter 4. It ends up being the second biggest evangelistic outreach in the history of the early church. And that was not what they planned that day. They're just going to church. And here God says, now watch how this happened. Because the church of Jesus Christ, even though represented only two people, were not willing to keep those things separate. Here's a man who desperately needs what Jesus is all about. And here's church folks 
who say, we're going to bring them together. What I have noticed throughout the whole Bible is the cause and effects that have happened. Like uh, Jonah and the whale, for example, whenever God tells you to do something, you should do it. And if you don't, then something bad happens to you. But what I like is that whenever God helps somebody out, I feel like secretly he knows the outcome and how it's going to affect him later on. Like, let's say, you know, the story that you said, how he heals the guy's legs. Uh, the guy may tell everybody more about him, and that'll help him spread the word. So what I think is giving can help give back to you. And that's why it motivates me to give to others. I love that. I love that. And your description of how God does that, one of my... One of my favorite words that I, I like to use, you, Jesus goes around and said the kingdom of God is like this and that, like God is like a farmer and God is like a, you know, a, a landowner or a business owner, all that kind of stuff. Uh, to me, one of my favorite things that I, I kind of put into it, maybe now even more because our daughter is a musician, our, our God is an orchestrator, right? He's an orchestra leader, right? So he orchestrates those moments, not just that it's blessing me, like you said, Aaron, it then spills out to the lives of other people because... You see the effect by the end of the story. It's not just this dude. Everybody's getting in on the praise. Because <laughs> it started out as an ordinary day at church, and it ended up being not a very un non-ordinary day by the end, end of the time. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. All right, well, let me weave into here and keep keep sharing yours. Well, let me weave in a couple that, that relate to um, to what uh, Bonhoeffer writes about, or at least comes out in the, in the introduction of the book. Um, first of all, and this is, goes exactly what Nancy said, so think about that language. It, it doesn't just say, they said to him, look at me, look at us. Before that, it says, they looked directly at him. By the way, why, why is that a big deal? I mean, I don't think things have changed a whole lot in this day and then. Uh, if you're driving by the contributor newspaper person and you don't have money, you know the temptation is to not turn your head or the person will work for food or whatever. Right? That, and I, I'm not saying that bad. I'll do it too sometimes. And there is the sense in which we're going to church, and by the way, not even beating them up, it's an important thing. I didn't look at anybody on the side of the road when I'm cooking it to get here to church because I had to do announcements and forgot I had to be in the whole holy, holy huddle, right? And I forgot my introduction to David on the way, so I'm like, I'm doing all this stuff, right? I'm not looking at what's going on, and these people are not even looking at them. So I think it's beautiful that they stop for a moment and, and they allow for a real human encounter. They say, they, I'm looking at you, I'm seeing you, and we're looking back at you. The, the same thing happens in John 9, right? My favorite little pair, like couple words in, in the Gospels, it says they come up and it says Jesus saw a man, the period there, who had been blind from birth. And immediately you find out that the disciples don't see a man, they see a theological issue. Because they, I'm not picking on them, we'll do the same thing. They said... Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They don't see a man. They see a church argument. <laughs> Jesus saw a man. And I love it that here the disciples of Jesus saw a man on the way to church. And they said, look at me. There was a real encounter, hear this, and how we started, between the needs of the world and the community and the people of Jesus 
came together in a genuine human encounter. Now, why does that have something to do with, with, with Bonhoeffer? Um, the introduction calls it this way, and I'll give you the, the more popular phrase that people will use to describe Dietrich Bonhoeffer's um, theology. But in the introduction, it, it talks about Bonhoeffer's insistent realism. Fancy way of saying he did not want empty talk. He wanted to engage what was real. Now think about this. From a theologian and seminary teacher, he could easily be the guy that does a lot of empty talk. And it's about getting the right words and thoughts and all that stuff. No. So let me read this again from the introduction. But I love this about Bonhoeffer and why I want him to be in our room here. For Bonhoeffer, Christianity could never be merely intellectual theory, theology divorced from life. Now watch the two pitfalls we can fall into. Could never be merely intellectual theory or doctrine divorced from life on the one hand, or mystical emotion on the other. But it must always be responsible, obedient action. The discipleship of Jesus, listen to this language, in every situation of concrete, everyday life. That's one of the things I love about Bonhoeffer. He said, we cannot make Christianity about what we talk about in rooms only, or what we think about and write in papers. It must come to fruition in everyday, dirty, messy, crazy, ordinary life. So he became famous for later on, he would write papers about what he called worldly Christianity. Now, if you're not careful, you think, oh, great, I'll, I've done worldly Christianity before a lot, right? No, no, no. He meant you've got to be engaged with the world. If you're not, don't call it Christianity, which I think is really powerful. Another uh, quote from him, if I can find it. <clears throat> Sorry, you know, I don't go off my notes on that. come back to it. I can't find it. But uh, for him, so it's not, it's not a head game. Oh, here it is. Here it is. It is only by living completely in this world that one learns how to have faith. Living completely in the world. Now, that doesn't mean going, partying, drinking, get drunk, all that kind of stuff. But being not disengaged from the world that we have around us. Kimberly, you going to say? I think that that is um, a spiritual awareness and that we meet someone right where they are. And we listen. And God works in spiritual ways. So when I'm talking to someone that I've met standing on the side of the road, if I look at them and I say, what is your pain? What is your hurt? Mm. I can do that only because I am a child of God. And that love and that compassion for that individual that I've never seen in my life is there. And it's none of me and it's all of him. But it's the taking the time, whether I get killed or not, my children are there. I mean, I am aware, but it's to get to know that person and to show them the real love and compassion of Jesus Christ. Not anything to do with me. But as that is taking place, there is a spiritual sense that I cannot describe or I cannot explain. It is not of this world. And that is what happens. Absolutely. And that fits in with what David talked about today, time, not money. I mean, putting your two things together. We're talking about investing time enough to be in the life of another human being. And again, think about how deep, uh, he's not just saying we ought to do that. He's saying we can't, and he's not saying you're going to hell or anything. But let's not call it Christianity if all we're doing is sitting in a room talking about Jesus or singing songs. 
if, he's, if we're not engaged with the very people that Jesus is all about, which is all of us have that need, then, then it's not what Jesus came to give, right? The other thing that I like about what you said, it's also a story like this is not, it also rescues us from this um, rescuer mentality. Like Peter and John are going and blessing him. Peter and John were changed. Their prayer experience was changed. Their worship experience was changed. And the early Christian community was changed. Don't you think they had some pretty powerful testimony right off the bat as they're growing this community? It's like, you know, 3,000. They're about to have another two or whatever. But one of the great testimonies that launches the next movement of God is this guy who is now changing the community. Does it make sense? It's all of us in this together. Nobody's better or worse. And I think that's so important. And that's what Bonhoeffer means by worldly Christianity. Jacques, you want to say something? No, I'm sorry. I think the interesting thing is that man has been there before, and the apostles walked by him before. Ooh, good point. And, and, and I really believe it was the prompting of the Holy Spirit to the apostles to notice him because yes. the time was right. Oh, I love that. Yes, yes. So think about it. How many times? Because it was 3 in the afternoon. It meant they were there 3 in the afternoon yesterday. I've never, I've studied this text a thousand times. Jacques, I've never thought about that. And it's right out of the text, isn't it? It was 3 in the afternoon. What did they do? They went to pray every day. What did it say they did for this guy every day? Every day he was placed there at the temple courts to beg. So they passed by him a thousand times. Never thought about that. And it is, yes, the prompting of the Holy Spirit. It's also the commission. By the way, this is a great example of living out. Um, a lot of people say Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is the thesis statement for the rest of the book of Acts. Don't worry about times and dates. That's not your job. I need to hear that again. When will all this stuff be over? Don't worry about time today, not your job. But you will be my witnesses. Listen to this. In Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, which means you get to testify to the experience of the Holy Spirit that you're about to get. He said, you're not doing this till the Holy Spirit comes. When the Holy Spirit comes, then you get to be witnesses. And now, for the first time, they have the Holy Spirit. I love the way you just said that, Jacques. The Holy Spirit prompted him to pay attention. Let's learn from that because he's still doing it. The Holy Spirit will say, you know, this is one day. Hold on. Stop here. Don't rush. Take the time and see if everybody isn't changing the process. I love it. Now, remember, the other thing that the introduction says that we're trying to avoid in Christianity is not just head games. We can make church a head game. We can make it about, look, I take notes on sermons and stuff. That means nothing if I don't go then live it out. The other side, though, is what he calls mystical emotionalism, and we can fall into that, too. There are a lot of churches in every heritage that can get caught up in making it a great show on Sunday morning. Now, don't misunderstand me. I think passion is important. I'm all about that. I think coming out, you know, coming from a deep, that's great. But we all know, I was talking with a group of friends of mine just a couple days ago, and we are talking about some experiences of churches we've been a part of that are mile wide and inch deep. I'm like God's using that too. But if all we come to church for is a great worship singing experience and a cool speaker, we're going to be empty and bankrupt. And part of what will happen is times like this will happen. I've said this time and time again. I'll say it again. I don't think COVID started anything new other than the physical problems. COVID exposed what was already there. If your marriage has problems, COVID will expose it. If your marriage is strong, COVID will bring that out. Right? If you have attention in the workplace, COVID will turn up the volume on it, but it will not create it. And if your church has depth, and this is one of the things I thank God for this church. We've gone through a lot of ups and downs, but I will tell you what. This church has spiritual depth. 
The relationships are real. People love each other here and love the community. It meant the world to me. You heard it a couple days ago that when they did the <coughs> children's ministry drive-by Christmas, a quarter of our family came because we long to be with each other. And that's not you. I love you guys, but that's the Holy Spirit working in you, right? This stuff will bring this stuff out. Now, I'm all about powerful passion, worship, and all that kind of stuff. But if we're trying to build a church of the future, and I, we never would go there, but can we just say this at the beginning of this process? We're not building a church of the future on any idols, on any experiences alone. We want it in the depth of God because that's the only thing that will sustain us, not some mystical emotionalism. And again, he understood that. Think about the guy writing this, was writing it. I'm told, I don't know, Hitler looks weird to me, and he's, you know, he's a demon. We all know that now. But apparently to hear that guy speak back in the day when you were ravaged in Germany, he got up and fired you up. It was all about passion. And people got fired up and didn't pay attention to the content of this guy's character and where he was taking us. So you hear me? This is a good guy to have in the room. Does that make sense? Weighing in on what we're talking about. So I love the fact that what he is talking about is this kind of worldly Christianity that says we're going to engage the community and God's going to show up in the encounter. Second thing, and we'll, we'll start wrapping up here. I call it the ongoing fruit of God's new life. Here's what I love about the gospel. Some of you missionaries, you know this. Some of you have been doing stuff in different communities and works in the community. You'll see something happen here, and then you see happen over here, and it's different but the same. You know what I'm talking about? Here's the cool thing. When the real thing about Jesus gets in you and you go somewhere else, it comes out there, and it looks like there, but it looks like Jesus. Does that make sense? I, that was kind of clunky to say that, but you know what I'm saying? The, the seeds, you take a seed, and I think this is true in, in, in herbology or whatever you call that stuff. You take seeds and you plant it somewhere else, it's going to look a, a little bit different. It's still going to be apple tree or whatever. The soil itself will actually change the nature of what comes out of it a little bit, but it's still the same stuff. The gospel is like that. When Jesus' seeds get in the community of God, then they can go places, like the Great Commission says, and it bursts out in new life there. Right? Isn't that cool? So <clears throat> when I think about this story, I thought about the earlier story that was in the back. This is the biggest story that's in the back of my mind. If you remember a particular day, Jesus had had a really tough period of his life. His cousin John has just been died, just been executed, probably one of the closest people to understanding what Jesus was all about. He's taken out. Uh, the disciples of Jesus have just been sent on their first mission trip, is the way to think about it. And he said, go out and heal the sick and do all this kind of stuff. And they had some cool stuff happen, and they were probably kicked out of some places and persecuted in other places. Then they come back. Jesus is grieving. They're worn out. And Jesus says, let's get together and go on a little retreat. Now, some of you know this story as the feeding of the 5,000 story. So Jesus goes, the only, I point this out every time I say, talk about this, it's the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels other than resurrection, so it's pretty important to him. And Jesus says, what was the plan for the day? The plan here for the day was just go to church, ordinary day. Ordinary day plan. We're just going to go on a little retreat, and we're going to rest and relax. And Luke 9, Mark 6, all of them say this. Jesus sits down, and, and what did he do, Nancy? He looked at people. He didn't just see disciples. All of a sudden, all these people started coming from all over the place. And it says, and I quote, He looked at them and saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So he taught them many things. Sometimes he just takes my breath away. 
Jesus had just dealt with death in his life, and his disciples are worn out from serving people. He had every, every justification to say, I'll get you tomorrow. And he looked at him and he said, oh, you are wandering. I can't help but to teach you some stuff. And like any good preacher from time to time, he got, he got going. <laughs> and he kept going. And the disciples who were expecting a little quiet, intimate meal, their stomachs start growling. And they say again, I quote, can you send them away so they can go home and get something to eat? Does anybody know what Jesus said? Anybody know what Jesus said? Don't feel bad if you don't, but it's a great line. You give him something to eat. You feed him. And they said, what did they, you know what they said? We don't have enough money. It would take six months of wages to feed these people. And you know what Jesus said? What do you have? You may not have money, but what do you have? If you have something, give it to them and see what happens. Oh, here's some bread and some fish, but what will this do? And we know what it did. Here's what I love. This wasn't a random moment. The Holy Spirit had prepared them, Jacques, when they're walking by, but the Holy Spirit prepared them three years ago when they didn't even know it. They were sitting at the feet of Jesus. They were saturated in the life and the heart and the compassion and the power of Jesus so that three years later... When the, when the voice in their mind said, this guy wants money, and I don't have any money. Hold on, I learned this lesson before. I saw the gospel seeds in this ragtag group of Jerusalem people that came out, and Jesus took nothing, and he made it blow up into the biggest potluck in human history. <laughs> so maybe, silver and gold I have none, but I got a prayer. And I got the belief in the power of the Holy Spirit, so I'm going to pray for you right now, and I'm going to say, get up. Let's not make them superheroes. Don't you think maybe they were scared? Like maybe, all right, Jesus said, I got the gift of the Holy Spirit, and, and the Holy Spirit right now is telling me to tell this guy to get up and walk. I saw Jesus do it a hundred times. Don't you think there's, he's not here this time. <laughs> Don't you think, okay, but I saw it happen before, and they're so saturated in the story and the life of Jesus that the seed was taken from Jerusalem into the center of the temple to this guy who'd been there a hundred days, and then it blows up here. And then all of a sudden, it's not a potluck here, but it ends up being a huge witness opportunity. Follow the story. They get thrown in jail, and the most powerful prayer in the early church, and the place is shaken, and all this stuff happens because they, they took the gospel and they made it happen here. Isn't that cool? So watch. Why do we come to church and sing the songs? Why do we commit to Christian community, even when it's hard, even when it's boring, even when we don't know what we're singing and praying? Why do we repeat a verse all the way through a sermon? in the hopes that somehow it gets in, and whether or not even heard anything else we said, you've got a verse that carries with you. Why do we do stuff like that? Because we believe the Holy Spirit's actually here, and Jesus is still alive, and you will be shocked at the moment when you're somewhere else, and God brings together what he trained you for and what he's put you in. So here's what I leave you with. This is what inspired this, going to this text. It's just a little tiny thing. Sometimes you'll read through this book, and you'll see big things. Sometimes you see the tiny little things hidden in there. Pages 9 and 10 of the introduction. I want to read this. At, age, at the age of 21, Bonhoeffer presented his doctorate thesis, a theological study of the communion of the saints. So he studied fellowship. He studied what it meant to be living in life together as a 21-year-old kid. But he was then sent to teach theology at Union in New York for a year. 
You know what he got introduced to then? He became fascinated by African-American spirituals and the struggle for black equality. So he's doing all this stuff about what community looks like. And then all of a sudden, he, gets, he encounters the worship that comes out of the cotton fields and out of slavery. And a whole community of God's people that let the gospel of hope and this idea of imagination change them so that they would not get beaten down, but they would cry out in hope. Right? You got all this? 21, doing his thesis, just doing his studies. And these songs get in his heart. 21 years old. That's what it says. Um, in later years, when the walls went up around Germany, and now, right, right, five, what, five, six, seven, eight years later, all the stuff is going down. He's meeting in secret, illegally, with 25 guys. He introduced his students to these songs. And one of the students that was there, one of his closest friends, went on to pastor here in America, writes, We hummed Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. 20 years before the radio and concert halls made it familiar to everybody. Now, don't brush past that. This little student, he's just studying what it means to live life together. He's studying it intellectually in academia. Then he hears the songs of people who lived life together in the worst possible experience in America. And then God brings it up to seven years later when a group of people who didn't know they needed it yet we're going to have to learn how to sing songs of freedom from oppression and injustice and slavery in a whole different place. And they went on to live a life together, in part singing songs and reading scriptures and doing meditation and practicing silence and solitude and engagement. And then he said, I'm going to write a little book about it. And then some years later, at the beginning, in the middle of a crazy pandemic and all the weird stuff, we're going to sit down in our community and I wonder how songs and thoughts and words and scriptures from a long time ago will come with us in the moment we need it most. Isn't that pretty cool? That's the God we serve. He plants the seed, and then it explodes in ways we couldn't imagine. Let's pray. Father God, as we launch into a new year, we've never needed your story and your imagination and your resurrection power more. So we are confessing again at the beginning of the new year. We're recommitting to not making this an academic exercise. We want to join with the saints of the past, including Dietrich and others, folks on the plantations and all of that, who say we're not just going to think about this stuff. We are going to cry out by your power, not ours, to live it out in the ordinary, concrete moments of everyday life. And then, Father, please walk with us as we practice what it means to be together in a world that is so desperately longing for authentic, genuine, honest, real community. You gave it to us. We forget it sometimes. But thank you for never giving up on us and reinventing Christian community in every age and in every place. Father, please bless this church. I love it so much that you love it more. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. See you next week. We'll finish up the introduction, may begin uh, the chapter on community. We'll probably do two or three weeks on the chapter called community. Love you guys.